Well, that's not really true. On the other hand, I think I was more curious about drugs than anything else. You know, I mean, I've seen cats because I'm a, I always have a cat or two around, and I. If something startles a cat, something strange happens, a cat will become curious about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I felt about drugs, mm -hmm. is that, uh, like, I, I regard them as, as dangerous and, and potentially lethal, <clears throat> but I had a cat's curiosity about them. Dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We have our illusion projector on and we're ready to kick worm kisser ass. <laughs> Today, we are covering the Ganymede Takeover, co-written by Philip K. Dick and Ray Nelson, who is most famous for writing the short story 8 a.m. in the morning, which inspired the movie They Live. So, Most famous? Well, well, well. Hold on, David. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're argument. overlooking a very interesting part of Ray Nelson's life, and that is the fact that he also invented the propeller beanie. Okay, that is very interesting. Let's come. You need back to get a very, you need to get a very like well-rounded view of who Ray Nelson was. Okay? Right. <laughs> um, I'm David Agronoff, your regular co-host. Uh, author of Punk Rock Ghost Story, Goddamn Killing Machines. If you're watching the video, to my left is... Uh, I'm Anthony Trevino. And down below, in beautiful Jim Jarmish black and white... Um, wait, what are we doing? I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. <laughs> you are Langhorn J. Tweed. And we have only one tiny little bit of PKD news that we're going to blow through really quick. Which is, for some reason, there's this graphic novel called Bystander 27, which is like a superhero um, new... Bystander. Bystander 27. And it has been, I guess it's been a big hit as a graphic novel, but every single article or review seems to be comparing it to Philip K. Dick. And Bleeding Cool had a headline, What if Philip K. Dick wrote superheroes? And so I kind of put that out there on Facebook the other day, and a couple of our readers, including Tommy Brem, uh, Tommy Brem, uh, read it, and they all agreed that it is not very Philip K. Dick. <laughs> That's interesting because I also didn't think it sounded very Philip K. Dick because the Bleeding Cool article doesn't give you any indication of how it's it's Dick-like outside of saying yeah. "ordinary man, extraordinary world," and I'm like, "That's every book." Yeah, right. Yeah. That's like that's like saying this book is a tour de force. What the fuck does that what even does mean? That... <laughs> so, and I bring this up mostly because there are so many comparisons to Philip K. Dick with it, and I think it's because Bleeding Cool, sure. Ble Bleeding Cool started this ball down the hill, and then everybody else kind of ran with it. And from everything I'm hearing, it's it's not so. Don't feel like you have to go out and get it. Is what is what we're. <laughs> what we're saying one of us here will read it and then yeah. we'll be the goddamn judge of that <laughs> judge jury um, and executioner i'm gonna say i'm gonna take not it dibs on on reading that 
So the Ganymede Takeover was published in 1967. David, let me tell you what was happening in 1967. Cool. All right. So there's a couple of, like, this is a really interesting year. But so we had the Summer of Love that we talked about, all the things we've talked about in past episodes. Larry, Uh, what was the Summer of Love again? Is that where all those hippies All the hippies got together? Yeah. In San Francisco and all that. Uh, But Thurgood Marshall, uh, I don't know if you mentioned this, but Thurgood Marshall was nominated as the first black Supreme Court justice. That is interesting, considering that we didn't even have the Civil Rights Act passed at that time. Right, yeah. And the Rolling Rolling Stone magazine debuted that year. Oh. And PBS was created that year. Oh, those are interesting facts of 1960. Yeah, what a year, right? A lot of new and, and important things happened that year. Well, and, and a lot of people are crediting 1968 as being the year that is almost as shitty as this year. Oh, yeah. Like when people debate which is the shittier year, it's always 1968 versus. So 1967 having a bunch of cool things happen in it is interesting. Shall we get into the writing and publication history of the Ganymede Takeover? I don't see why not. All right. Um, the Ganymede Takeover is unlike a lot of the other Philip K. Dick books that had kind of a false start in 64. And in that, it makes sense all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just fucking with you. Go on, David. Um, it kind of got a false start in 1964, being that it was a collaboration, but the bulk of the writing happened after Counterclock World and right before Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. So... Um, he was kind of in. So, so the first thing I want to know is how they wrote it. Did they they pass pages back and forth? Did one person write it and then the other person went through and did a draft? Well, that's we, what I want to know. We do have some quotes on that, but what we know is that the idea for the Ganymede takeover happened at these brainstorming sessions that they had with the San Francisco areas. Bay Area Science Fiction Writers Group that included PKD, Tony Boucher, uh, Mary Zimmer, Bradley, and Ray Nelson, and that they would sit around and throw around ideas. And as we'll see when we get into the quotes, that they had three projects that they were planning to work on together. And the first of which was The Unteleported Man, but eventually Ace told uh, PKD that we want you to do this on their own, which in hindsight might've been a bad choice because I think Ganymede takeover is a stronger, <laughs> stronger book than the unteleported man. And maybe they would have gotten something more coherent. And then and I still haven't gone back to read that one. So I have failed our fans so far, but I, I'll, I'll eventually, I'll eventually read it. I'm sorry. Cosmic puppets retrospective. Yeah. Do we still hate it? The answer is yes. <laughs> And um, in the third project that they intended to work on together, and um, it's believed that this project and um, and Unteleported Man were supposed to be warm up, or for them to get used to writing with each other, so they could work on a book called Ring of Fire, which was intended to be a sequel to Man in the High Castle. So um, that would have been interesting. Yeah. And um, Anthony's uh, out. <laughs> Anthony says no. I'm so out. 
<laughs> but well, I think if Ray Nelson was there, it might be interesting. It, I, you know what? We'll get into it, but yeah. 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 All right. So, Anthony, do you have the quotes in front of you? Because we have a Ray Nelson quote that we're – um, Ray Nelson's talking about that. We have more Ray Nelson quotes than we have PKD quotes on this book. What Ray said was, In the dream, I remembered the brainstorming sessions I had with Phil and the many other members of the San Francisco Bay Area science fiction community on those lazy Sunday afternoons in East Oakland. Three outlines for novels had been developed during these sessions, during which everyone threw ideas into the common pool and I had gone home to put the resulting chaos into some sort of order. Only the first, the Ganymede Takeover, was actually written and published. All right, so, um, yeah, so it's, I like, it's interesting to hear that everybody was kind of throwing ideas in there. Well, but were they all throwing ideas in there for, for to, like, the same, like, did Marion Zimmer Bradley say, okay, I have this idea, and then they all workshop that idea together, or did they all just kind of break off and talk about their own ideas with whoever no, I, else was in the room? I, if it's anything like our writing group was, it's just you you talk about a story idea, and people just throw out ideas, and you incorporate it into your... Okay. Well, I wasn't there, Larry, so I wouldn't know that, would I? <laughs> it's too bad. <laughs> well, and I think that the two, the unteleported man... And Ganymede Takeover were the ones that kind of got thrown around there. And then this sequel that we never got. But um, it's interesting because it it also makes you wonder, because through our Tony Boucher research and for the Tony Boucher episode, which everyone should go back and listen to, if they haven't listened to that one, um, it's Tony Boucher was definitely kind of like the head of the show or kind of like the person that was kind of, guiding things which was smart because he was an editor and he did publish one of the biggest magazines in science fiction and fantasy yeah and a big editor but also the one the older statesman elder statesman of of the community and and i have a feeling that you know they're probably going to be listening if anthony if tony boucher is sitting there saying like no i think you should go with that idea or or what you need are um telepathic worms from ganymede or whatever (laughs) Like he said, um, and look, the, the the elephant in the room is that uh, here is that this is pretty much the same story as Game Players of Titan. I disagree. When you told me that, I I, I was looking for it. I just don't see it. Uh, well, yeah, I don't I don't see it. They're not playing marbles to win back the human race. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, well, I guess what I'm talking about is you. It's very similar to Game Players of Titan that you just have outer solar system. Worm creatures. It's a, in a very generic way, yeah. It's yeah. Okay, well, yeah. Well, I guess the way to put it would be that not since the game Players of Titan has have we experienced, or, sorry, have we read a dick book that deals with an alien invasion. That's really what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And Pretty so, much. Yeah, and so this, this alien invasion story... But the cars still talk. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Um, and uh, I think one of the things that um, is kind of mentioned in uh, Divine Invasions is that there's also this feeling that this particular storyline, the Ganymede Takeover, might have also had its roots in sequelizing Man in the High Castle because the aspect of the Southern Plantation and the Tennessee aspects were one that uh, Ray Nelson and Philip K. Dick threw around in in relation to setting it in the greater Reich. Of, oh, okay. Yeah, 
And so there was talk at one point that that aspect of it, and we do know that Phil liked to reuse story elements from here and there. And so, and, so in in your guys' research, either one of you come across anything uh, putting Ray Nelson in Tennessee or having anything to do with the state of Tennessee? Because we know that that Philip K. Dick always does Colorado and San Francisco area. That's like his, where he sticks to everything and. You know, when they go to when he goes to the south, it's usually like Atlanta or New Orleans that we've seen in the past. So it's I think it's interesting that it's Tennessee. I think he just needed the plantation setting and and the south. So I think they kind of had to do they had to pick one of the states in the south. And I'm not sure. I didn't see any indication to why Tennessee. You know, they no. couldn't find any reason. No, I think Nelson. Grew up mostly in New York and then moved around um, to, like, uh, Chicago, Michigan. Um, it says uh, on the very reliable Wikipedia page that he also worked with Michael Moorcock in Paris, but I can't really? find anything linking him to, you know. To Moorcock? Huh. No, linking him to Tennessee or oh, okay. really any of the southern states, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah, it, it could be arbitrary. Yeah, and Nelson and Dick's relationship was one that um, PKD really felt, and there's lots of quotes on this going back to our in our Lysink episode where we talked about this, is that um, PKD saw Ray Nelson as somebody who got him, who understood his ideas, somebody that he could meld his vision with very seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and certainly Kim Stanley Robinson and his book on Philip K. Dick said that it, it it's kind of meaningless to try and figure out who wrote what and to look at the separation because it's very hard to see that. And it, and it appears that Ray Nelson was attempting to write in a PKD pastiche. Well, but that, I don't, I don't think it is written in a PKD pastiche. And I know Larry and I briefly touched on this, but I think it is much more of a cohesive narrative than a lot of the other Dick books. There isn't, four storylines crammed into one there's four (laughs) different things happening and it all kind of makes sense and and coalesces by the end i i think david's right and i think you you're right as well but the uh it does have the the basic dick structure but the the it's just better Mm -hmm. i think it's just better put together the characters are more clear they're more characters like if 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 Dick has any characters, they have like two or three characteristics. Stop me if I'm mistaken, but no one's going through a divorce in this one. Yeah, exactly. So like, so maybe Dick maybe Bob Nelson was like ah. characteristics, but then in this book, everybody has four or five characteristics. You know, there's there's just more depth and, and more cohesion everywhere you look. But ultimately, it comes back to mostly being Dick Dick's style. Well, and what's interesting too is because we have seen a few of the books that have that are very cohesive, like within the oeuvre. We just we've seen a lot that didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. So we still have. Uh, personally, I thought Marshall Timeslip, for example, was cohesive. I thought Three Stigmata was cohesive, um, you know. But I think I'm wondering if Ray Nelson had the ability to rein in Phil in a way that editors didn't feel comfortable with because it's a completed work that they're having sent to them. Right. right. Where Ray yeah. Nelson's like, Hey, we can do this. 
well, we're still working on it and, and, and that he might be able to rein him in in, in, in a way. But um, the, the lack of divorce <laughs> in the story um, could be explained a little bit by the next quote that we have from Ray Nelson, um, where he talks about how they were kind of practicing for the big one, but he also gets into some of the characters in relationship. Anthony? Since we were only practicing for the big one, we wrote the book we did in a spirit of almost hysterical hilarity, enclosing weird newspaper clippings and Beetle bubblegum cards in the installments of the ongoing story we mailed back and forth. So, Larry, uh, that answers your question. Oh, oh that right, sounds right. like a nightmare, by the way, having to wait for somebody to mail me a the piece mail. of a manuscript. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when we met, first at his place in East Oakland, and later at his other place in Marin County near the water, we often spent more time smoking grass, dropping acid, and flirting with each other's wives than working. So, did, did Ray Nelson come in here and be like, where's the bowl to put your keys in, dick? <laughs> <clears throat> Not for nothing is Takeover dedicated to both Kirsten and Nancy. Joan Hiyashi is a composite in many ways of these two remarkable women, and many of the concepts and plot twists were contributed by them in the nonstop brainstorming that always formed a part of our relationship. We never actually swapped wives or swung, yet the emotional involvement of this foursome went far beyond what normally passes for friendship between two married couples. So they were like spiritual swingers, you guys. There was they, probably they, some they, heavy petting. They, yeah, they, they probably got drunk and then like, how'd I up on this side of the couch? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, really close talking between the real, two. Real. <laughs> so I think we got from this quote a lot of good details about how their their partnership worked. They were mailing pages back and forth. Yeah. We didn't have di- any. We didn't have to consult Divorcepedia because the 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 framing of their friendship was this like weird foursome that they had happily married foursome. Yeah, um, that they all got along as as couples, and I did see um, in Divine Invasions there was quotes about how uh, about how they both loved each other's like wives at the time, and that was like that definitely formed part of their partnership um, that they all hung out together. I like you know, and he kind of outs uh, Phil there by talking about dropping acid because you know Phil famously tries to always say that he only i only did it twice only did it twice well i think phil phil and you know look i am not a dick scholar but by any means but i I think from what i've gathered in the last couple years is that his relationship with drug use and how it conflicts with his own moral philosophy was always a a battle for him like he's always trying to swing one way or the other and it's a constant thing with him maybe he wasn't sure what he wanted his image to be but he knew he didn't want it to be drug addict. He knew that was what he wanted it to be. So. Because because now you can you can say yeah I've done drugs and whatever and dropped ass and people are like yeah that's just part of the like a writer's process or whatever. But yeah, then I think us. it would probably be more stigmatized. Yeah. Well, and it wouldn't be a Philip K. Dick novel without a rejected stupid name. Uh, <laughs> and so oh, really. Yeah, we have another rejected title, rejected by Ace. Um, but there's also controversy over just how shitty the title was, because and we'll get to that in a second. But in a if it's le- in the notes, I didn't read it yet. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> in a letter to his agent Scott Meredith in 1968, PKD wrote, 
I am very anxious to get back from Ace the outline for The Stones Rejected, retitled what? by Ace. What? <laughs> take over. The, the Stones, Stones Rejected? Now, you tell me. I don't know I mean, what that is. That might be a good title, but uh, not for this book. For what? Yeah. A reboot <laughs> of, like, The Philosopher's Stone or some shit? I don't know. The Stones Rejected. Actually- take your fucking magic. Not this book. I have no idea what the Stones Rejected means, but that... That has more in line with uh, Game Players of Titan, I guess, Stones, Marbles. Marbles. You figure it out. (laughs) Okay, so um, an editor, Terry Carr, who was, um, as we all remember from our um, interview with uh, Betsy Wolheim, was was, uh, Don Wolheim's right-hand dude. Uh, Terry Carr wrote... um, Ray's mentioning that the Ganymede takeover was originally titled Earth's Diurnal Course is a bit... Right, we went over that. Yeah, a bit confusing to me. Did we? It, uh, Ray is right in doing so. That the Though the title would have been in Earth's Wait, Diurnal Course... Book? Wait, yeah. hold on. That, that was a different title for a different book. That was Dr. Uh, Blood Money. Well, that's just it. There, There's a confusion because at some point... Ray Nelson said that the original title was in Earth's Diurnal Course, and Terry Carr in this court is saying, no, 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 and no. And he that's... shot himself after reading it, yeah, because <laughs> it's a terrible title. Yeah, and so Terry Carr just goes on to say, no, that was, you know, he says, till Scott Meredith changed it, it surprises me that Phil had earlier put that title on some other novel published by Ace, yeah. and it was dumb okay. who changed it. I think it was Dr. Blood Money or How We Got Along After the Bomb. Yeah. So, so like, Ray Nelson at some point was telling people that um, that Ganymede Takeover was also called Nurse Diurnal Course. Huh. So, God, that title sucks. That title sucks. Yes. It's awful. Um, so do we all agree, because we have to do this every time there's an original title, that the Ganymede Takeover is a far superior title for this? Yes. Yeah, it's a good title. It's actually a good title, yeah. For for once, for once, I thought, no, it's not a bad title. Yeah, and um, okay, so, um, and then after the Terry Carr quote, there's there's another Ray N- Ray Nelson quote, and this is the last one talking about the three projects that they were working on. Uh, Anthony, did you want to read that one? Only the first. Only the first. The Ganymede Takeover was actually written and published. It has since been repeatedly published in the USA, England, France, and Germany. The second, The Whale Mouth Colony, was later recycled by Phil in part. The third, in best, The Ring of Fire, remains to this day little more than an outline and a lot of scribbles on odd bits of paper. And perhaps, if I haven't erased it, a tape recording of a brainstorming session. Is The Whale Mouth Colony... um, Unteleported Man. Unteleported Man, yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, and That's what so, I thought. yeah, in the majority of the details about um, Phil and Ray's relationship are between the pages of one thirty six and one forty two of Divine Invasions. That's where they really kind of talk about their friendship and relationship. And um, and according to Divine Invasions, it says Phil never much liked LSD. He only took it a few times, despite wild rumors. But in 1964, he dropped acid on at least two occasions with um, Ray Nelson. Nelson recalled that during his trip, 
uh, Phil was sweating, feeling isolated. And this uh, LSD experience, according to a July 1974 letter, inspired the maze of death, which we will huh. next season. So the maze of death came out of uh, tripping balls with, uh, nice. with Ray Nelson. So um, that's that's all I have on the writing and publication history. What I will say about it is is that it is the only, and this of course became a problem for both all of us in the process of getting this book for the episode. It's the only PKD book that is not currently in print in the United States. So, um, yeah, which is not, why it was not an easy book to get. No, it was more expensive for me than yeah. And so I had the British edition. Which um, and I had to order it twice. It's a long story, but it got sent to my. Oh, Larry! Larry got that good edition, though. Yeah, the eight. That up, yeah. Um, I can't share my edition because now is the time for me yeah. to tell everybody how I I uh, I was able to listen to this because David found a was it David or you, Larry? Which one of you oh, sent? It was David. Me? It was David, right? David found the PDF. Uh, Dave, no, David found a YouTube video, oh, um, yeah. uh, which is an audio book that. Jennifer Murtha and Stephen Davis did um, of the Ganymede Takeover. Wow! And um, I, so I say this would be that. the only way. Yeah, yeah. Huge shout out to them for saving me because I've gotten so used to downloading every dick book we do now on my Kindle because I can highlight, I can make notes, I can access yes. all those notes. It's very easy. Um, and I went to download it a week before we recorded to read the book a week ahead of time, and I couldn't find it. And I was like, well, <laughs> fuck me, I guess. So, so uh, yeah, I listened to the Ganymede Takeover. And I don't know, it was certainly difficult. I don't, I don't like audiobooks. I don't know how you guys are about no, audiobooks. I, I, I don't like it either. I went um, through a phase where I liked them, but... Um... I, as, typically, I don't care for audiobooks because it's actually harder for me to, to remember things, I think. And so the character names and all this, aside from Percy X and uh, a few other characters, I can't remember a whole lot of <laughs> names associated with actions. So you have to forgive right. me. I will say that one of the characters, the, the voice actor for the doctor sounded just like Mr. Garrison on South Park, which oh, yeah. <laughs> listening to this really fun for me. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So um, that's it for the writing and story publication history. So you know what that cool. means. You know what time it is, Anthony? Time to get oh, it. It's time to get ill. Story down. Slapping the bass. All right, I get to mute my mic now. I'm going to mute my mic and. But you muted before you said anything. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so lonely. That's all right. I'm always lonely. You're on your own, dude. <laughs> all right. Here is my book report on the Ganymede Takeover by Philip K. Dick and that guy who invented the propeller hat. So where do we start? We start with Chapter 1. Which side is Chapter 1? Chapter 1, the Ganymedean Jabba Worms. Uh, so this book starts with the Jabba worms of Ganymede taking over the earth and in a war. And it was a, it was considered world war three. The year is like 
2047 at this point, and they're they basically instead of enslaving everyone, they just kept everything going pretty much as normal, and just they own the earth. And they said, "Cool, we'll keep control of you until eventually we do enslave you, use you in some way." But the Ganymedians aren't adept at this. This is not their central thing. This is like a new idea. We'll become conquerors of worlds. So they like it more in idea than they do in practice. And our guy here, whatever, Mechis, is, was against the war. And <laughs> Mechis was against the war. And now, because he was against the war, he gets to be in charge of the worst territory on the planet. And everyone knows the worst territory on the planet is Tennessee. Yeah, I'm not a Tennessee fan, I gotta say. <laughs> Fuck the Titans. All right. So he he likes this so so much that he faints from hatred. That's how much he likes his new job. <laughs> All right, so we meet him, we meet his his creatures who are basically bred slave labor that hold all the jobs because our Jabba worms cannot move. They can move a little bit, but they don't have arms or legs. They can't manipulate things other than with their tongue. And so they're kind of gross. Blah, blah, blah. They're psychic creatures. Blah, blah, blah. On to Joan Hayachi, who is basically a VH1 host of a stupid show. Hayashi. Hayashi. We're going with Hayashi. Okay. Is there? I, sorry, is there a C-H or an S? I thought it was S-H. Oh, yeah, it is S-H. Sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. Hayashi. And she's a VH1 host. And she's, uh, like, pretty shitty at her job. Even though she loves it, she does shitty music. And she is told so by our hero, Percy X. But that's later. So we meet her. She's going to Tennessee to meet up with Percy X and get some good music from the natives of Tennessee, the, the backwoods sort of real sound of, of the, the colored folk in 2047. That's her, that's her cover story. But it turns out she's a shitty spy. And then we meet the pimp. We meet Paul Rivers, a uh, pimp psychiatrist who we meet laying out on a beach with a naked woman there, just ready to service him from the sex club, sex club, uh, sex clubs of America or something. I don't know what they're called, but that's close enough. Uh, and then he's like, oh, man, the, the, the office called, said, I got to go do this job where I got to protect this dude. All right, I'm, I'm off. And then he leaves sort of like 007 style. I'll see you later, baby. So he leaves. Then we go back to where Jones staying. We meet Gus. Gus is a is what a, what I have written down here. Gus, <clears throat> where are you, Gus? Gus Swingerd. How do you say that name? Anybody? Anybody got a clue? No, no, no clue. You're asking me. Oh, I'm trying to ask Anthony, but he's not paying attention. Fucking, fucking. I was letting you do your thing. I was letting you do your thing. Yeah, but I question? said names. Names. Gus Sween, 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 S
Swensgard. Swensgard? Swensgard, who is a clever hick burger extraordinaire. <laughs> That's how I describe him. Then we meet, and Gus is like, gee, I don't know. I don't think you want to go see those guys up there. They're pretty whacked out. He and he sounds like he, he's not going to be a smart guy at all. Turns out he's much smarter than you would you would believe, but not as smart as he thinks he is. And so Joan is getting ready to go. Gus pats her on the head. Paul Rivers says, hey, can I go with you? Goes to get a gun. She takes off. And then she gets a call from her boss, who is the uh, Marshal Coley, who... We find out, for some reason, they don't know that our hero, Percy X, is a psychic. And so the, they get this new information. Marshall Coley's like, oh, shit. Well, there, there goes my chances for that skin, because Marshall Coley's big thing is skin. <clears throat> Marshall Coley is a Ganymedian worm, Jabba, by the way. But he's into skin collecting. He is all about getting skin. He wants human skins for his wall so he can have skins of humans hanging from his wall with the teeth and everything. So he's normal. He's a normal guy. Uh, <laughs> we, so we, we go to the mountains where Lincoln and Percy X are talking. Lincoln is, is, is a number one. You are my number one. So, they're they're talking about. Hey, I'm wearing a shirt for that movie right now. <laughs> the they have a conversation. That was a good Jack Palance, Larry. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I've been working on that one for a moment. That moment. <laughs> uh, so they're talking about shit. They're like, "Hey, what do we do next? You know, we've got stuff to do. We gotta. Oh yeah, you do. Nothing's working out right, but we got to figure out how we're gonna take over." everything apparently i'm the last chance for human beings according to the psychiatrist association of the world and so then blah 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 joan then gets phone call like i was saying gets phone call from her boss and he's like dude um you can't go there what are you doing that's a dumb idea and she's like well why can't i go there i got this thing where i'm gonna kill him right going to be cool and he's like no no he's a psychic he's going to figure it out she's like ah shit so i guess i'm just going to stand in the middle of nowhere for a while and then she meets up with a couple of the uh the dudes from from percy's group what are they called the the neeg well they call it the neeg parts like the parts yeah which is parts a little (laughs) we'll get there and then we all get it yeah, the uh, so these two guys are like, we're gonna kill that bitch, and then she gets saved by Percy X because Percy X knows her. They went to college together, and so Percy's like, no, she's cool. She'll come with me. And then we get this whole scene where Percy is explaining like, there's a spirituality. You know, the need parts isn't just a, a group of people; it's also a religion just like the Jewish people are a people and a religion. And there's a a spiritual element to what we're doing. And it's more than just saving humanity. It's, it's bringing 
a new a, a new viewpoint into the world and trying to get rid of racism by by killing the wicks that's sort of the plan anyway so yeah immediately that's dropped from the book so then um let's see then gus oh the mechus is coming into town gus is like i can catch that boy for you and this is after gus has this plan to dig out this old shelter that has a bunch of chicks in it that he's gonna have and make money off of turns out the chicks aren't chicks they're guns very special guns and turns out Gus doesn't get it because the the Neegs actually kill kill his foreman and um, render him unable to move, and they steal all the guns. Then cut to Gus waking up with uh, with Marshall, what's his face, Marshall Skin Collector, uh, and he's like, "Well, you really fucked up. I'm gonna collect your skin." And then Gus says, no, wait, I got a plan. I can catch the, the guys, get the guns back, and then well, I'll, I'll fix this whole problem. You'll get your skin. I'll keep my skin. Everything will work out. Because I planted a I, – when, when, I, when I patted the girl on the head, I, I actually put a, a little tracker on there. So I know where she is, and she's with the dude. Let's do this thing. That happens. So what happens is she's lying, they're all lying in a in a pile. The the Neegs are lying in a pile, and they're they're doing this song, and it's really cool, and it's really spiritual, and uh, it's something that Joan has never heard before. So she wants to record it. Then uh, after you know after her and Percy had banged, uh, they're sleeping in the pile. And then he's stroking her hair. He feels the the tracker. He's like, oh shit, we're fucked. And then they are fucked because then these really cool, like, uh, tracker bombs, tracker missiles start coming at them. And then Lincoln gets blown up. So, you know, RIP Lincoln. And then uh, Percy X gets blown up. Joan tries to save him, but they end up getting kidnapped by the boss. The plan works. It's great. But Mechus is coming quick to town because he has a plan to do other things. And then so Marshall Skin Collector is like, oh, man, I need to get that guy before Mechus gets here. But it's too late. Mechus shows up. Mechus is like, I want to be in charge right now. You can go just sign the papers or whatever. And so so, so, uh, what's his face there? Coley. Coley's like, hey, uh. You like models? You ever seen uh, airplanes from World War One? It's just a delay tactic. That is pretty funny. Where he's like, "Yeah, well, there's all these models. Yeah, sign the papers." No, no, wait a second. Hey, how do you feel about automobiles? And then he's like, "Oh, I also have post World War One models. I've got tons of models that you got to check out." He's like, "Sign the fucking papers." And he secretly, he's like, no, I can't, have, I can't sign the papers. I need that skin. Give me that skin. All right. So then he signs the papers. Mecca says, all right, yeah, we're not taking his skin. We're not killing anybody. I have a plan where I'm going to put uh, Percy X in charge, and that'll bring all these people together, and somehow Tennessee will be great. 
I, I, I really don't care what the plan, his plan is because nothing he does works until the end. And so Mechus finds that uh, Percy might be a little too uppity for him as Percy tries to strangle him immediately. And Mechus is like, all right, we got to send him to <laughs> the doctor. This is the best character, by the way, is uh, Dr. Rudolph Balkani. He is a crazy-ass mad scientist who invented all these crazy weapons when the war was happening. And then he's also a psychiatrist who knows all these weird, like, secret psychiatry things that no one is... No one is... He's the top of his field, but also the crazy top of his field. And so he gets Joan, and he gets Percy, and Joan, he immediately puts into a... Uh, sensory deprivation tank. Joan loses her mind, becomes a bodhisattva, and uh, so she's enlightened. It's great for her, which is great. And then here along comes psychiatrist Paul Rivers and his buddy, and they're like, all right, we got to have a plan to get them out of there so we can take them back to Tennessee, do this other stuff, because now we need them to fire off this giant gun that is called the Hell Gun, because then he'll die a hero. Humanity will come together and get rid of the Ganymedian or Jabba the Huts. And so then he goes, okay, that's a good plan. They make these, they buy these robots that were actually made by Balkani. And Balkani is fooled by the robots. So fooled by the robots that he falls in love with the robot Joan. He's like, oh, she's never changing. Nothing is changing. It's so weird. It's totally ruining my theory of what I could do with people's minds. And so uh, that, that goes on for a while. And meanwhile, Gus is trying to round up the rest of, uh, you know, now that the Percy's gone, Gus is trying to round up the rest of the, the crew. And turns out Lincoln didn't die, which is, like, not talked about at all, like, Oh, it's sad that he blew up. And then, oh, guess what? He's still alive. And they don't talk about how the guns got to to the, the need party. They just kind of like all of a sudden they're using them. So that was kind of dumb. And then so the war goes back and forth for a while. There's other plans, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Mechus gets really into Balkani's work. He's like, oh. I don't care what's going on outside. I need to understand this Balkani thing. I've become a new kind of creature. I'm no longer collect, uh, part of the collective of the Ganymede Jabba the Huts. I am my own thing. And I am the smartest being in the universe. And then meanwhile, Balkani is like, God, I love this robot. I don't know she's a robot, but I love her. And I love her so much, I have to kill her. And he bashes in her brain. And then once he finds out she's a robot, he figures out the end to his book, writes the end of his book, and then commits suicide by injection. End of his story. We go back to town. Gus is doing his thing. He sees a plan where he can become not only the master of Tennessee, but the king of the world. I'm king of the world. Uh, and then we're going back and forth. The, the Psychiatry Society wants Paul to maybe just kill Percy X or maybe have him fire off the gun 
it goes, it vacillates for a while. We don't know. And then eventually Paul has to kill Percy X because he doesn't want him to fire off the hell gun, but he fails at killing Percy X in a great scene where we find out that time is relative and because the gun has already been fired in the future, they're feeling the effects of the gun in the past. And there's also a great weapon that is the basically turning off the sun. The Ganymedians decide they're going to leave. They're like, fuck this being conqueror shit. We're going home. We're going to not do this again. This is stupid. This was a bad idea. What we'll do is we'll just turn off the sun. It'll freeze the planet. Everything will die. We'll thaw it out, and, and then we'll own a planet that's alive but doesn't have any stupid creatures on it. And it seems like a good plan. Uh, but Percy presses the button. Everybody disappears, goes into pure blackness, loses their all their senses. Basically, it's a, a universal sensory deprivation. And Mex's plan to connect with the, the rest of the Ganymedians works. Every, every one of them dies because they don't know how to function without the collective and without their senses because they're so psychic or whatever. And then everyone has their like real like solipsistic trip. And because Joan has ascended to, to enlightened state, she's actually cool with what's happening. And so she saves the day, blah, blah, blah. Percy gets killed because the, the button really fucked him up or Paul fucked him up and the button fucked him up. Then our boy uh, Gus decides he's going to be president of the world because everyone's ecstatic that they're no longer non-entities. He says, I'm going to go on TV and say I'm king of the world. And so he goes on TV, but... He has a dark shadow that remains that's illusory. And then the dark shadow is like, ah, you suck. And Gus is like, I don't suck, but I do kind of suck. And so it doesn't work out. He doesn't become king of the world right, of the, right away. And then uh, the shrinks are like, don't worry, Gus. We'll run your campaign to be king of the world. The end. So, yeah, that's the story breakdown. Let's get into the themes a little bit and close this out. Um, the biggest thing I didn't talk about was the coolest thing in the in the book, though, was those guns, uh, the, uh, the illusion, illusion guns, I, the illusion projector, because that's my favorite. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that. So one of the things that's interesting in the criticism of this book is that um, it's funny because Kim Stanley Robinson, like in, when he talks about the Ganymede takeover, he said that there was no useful metaphor for anything that was actually happening in our world. Um, which I think Ray Nelson definitely disagreed with because yeah, in, right? <laughs> in Divine Invasions, there's a quote that says that the book was definitely about the Japanese imperial occupation forces um, and how they occupied other countries, which we know they did occupy China. They did not occupy here, but it also shows that they were pivoting from a, um, a High Castle sequel idea for the... That makes sense. Yeah. And so, so that that is something that is going on here. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Ganymedian worms. Um, you refer to them as Jabba's, but um, that's what they were to me. And their creatures were salacious crumbs. 
Yeah, and they're described very well as early as page three with, um, he was like all members of the Ganymedian ruling uh, species, legless, armless, pink, and very much like a large worm in appearance. Um, And I like how they point out, like, they think of the humans as poor creatures, and they're like, you should have never let us know you were here. (laughs) Um, And that their way or their system is first conquer, conquer, occupy, then absorb. That's the way it's done. And Yeah, that's the way it's described at the beginning. But by the end, we find out that this is the first time they've done it. Right. It's weird. It's one of those... That is one of those dick things where he introduces an idea at the beginning and forgets about it and then forgets about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so Ray, I, Ray didn't fix it that time. Yeah. And I do think that they were, because we know that Ray Nelson said that they were trying to go for this Japanese occupation thing. And we've seen as early as the world Jones made where, um, you know, fascist um, empires on earth, like, um, Dick liked to turn them into weird cosmic alien. Yeah. Things. And so I think that that tradition within the PKD oeuvre goes back to Jews into single cell organisms. And... Right. And so we've got that going on here and get me take over, but, um, and, um, there, and you did highlight this scene, but I did like that the new, ruler of Tennessee, like he's, he really is upset about it. He's like, Oh man, fuck this job. That was great. (laughs) And that was really PKD because we're getting into the whole idea of like the bureaucracy that you don't want to take part in. And, you know, it's, it's not like, he's like, yo, I get Tennessee. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And, um, the worst place on the world. (laughs) And correct me if I'm wrong. First mail that you could possibly have. That's what it's called. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but was the previous worm who ran Tennessee, he was the one that was into collecting the model airplanes, right? Yeah. Model airplanes and human skins. And he was Catholic too, which was interesting. And he was also Catholic. Yeah. Um, So I don't know what was going on there that he made that, that the worm be like, a Catholic specifically. Yeah, but, it was, it was weird. Um, but that was an interesting thing that I saw there. Um, and at one point, um, uh, Mikas, like the Ganymedian worm ruler of Tennessee tries to offer Percy X, the opportunity to rule Tennessee, like as kind of a collaborator. And eventually that goes to Gus. Yeah. Like, I can't, I can't quite, Remember what his what Meek's plan was? Meekus's plan was yeah. Because I, I know he wanted to put one person in charge of Tennessee to to make it because right now it's split into territories with different burgers running different areas and sort of feudal system that they have there. But he wanted to basically make a governor of the whole the whole place. But that's his job. So I didn't understand really what. Well, if it helps, Larry, I didn't understand anything because <laughs> because of listening to it, I couldn't write things down as I listened to so much of it while I was driving uh, that yeah. that I am so not focused and dialed in on what's going on in this book that well, I see, don't that's even. The think problem I, can I have with audiobooks, yeah, audiobooks same. in general is like there's just there. You, I need that connection, that visual, yeah. Connection. So, so if I so if I don't talk a whole lot about the actual book itself, it's because. 
uh, honestly, I'll probably reread it when I find a print copy. But continue. The yeah. burgers rule all. Go on. Yeah, well, that was his. That was his plan. Yeah, and I like that the kind of like the attempt to kind of take back control by the human society was the World Psychiatric Association. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and so we have some kind of funny, weird moments with, and this this comes into the kind of PKD underrated satire thing that's going on here, and. Um, I don't know. I mean, you talked about it in the story breakdown, but uh, for me, one of the in- interesting elements was that Percy X was kind of, or like, that you know, the World Psych- Psychiatric Association basically comes to him and says, like, "Hey, we kind of need you to die as a martyr." Yeah, they want him to be a martyr. Yeah, and because I he doesn't basically he's considered the last hope of humanity, but if he does get captured and skinned then all of humanity is doomed. The, vaguely doomed. Yeah. But the uh, but if he dies a martyr, then humanity might rise up, I guess is the is the idea behind that. Yeah, and so it's interesting because we've now seen two books in a row um between the Archbishop and uh Percy X that um PKD is playing with the idea of black radicals. Mm-hmm. Um, in in an interesting, but well, is the time to you know it, it, to play with that idea? There's yeah. a, a lot of black radicals out there fighting for freedom. So yeah, and um, well, he's not as flushed out as I would like. Uh, the existence of Percy X in this story, I think, is very important, and I like it. And I actually wish there was more focus on Percy X. That's one of the thing, one of the yeah. few things that I thought was missing here yeah i i thought he should have been more central yeah uh yeah i i, I agree with that did you i sorry i dipped for one quick second are we back. discussing the fact that percy x is just malcolm x yeah <laughs> standing yeah. yeah basically and that yeah. Yeah. the clock world in this book he's done it twice in a row um yeah yeah that's right that's right okay yeah, and so which is interesting because do androids, which is the next book. Well, you you could say the, that the uh, the what what's his face from Counterclock was more of a an MLK figure than a mm-hmm. than a Malcolm X figure. So and Joan um, being a collab, be, being a collaborator to capture Percy X that that gets a little bit into our themes with like well we don't have a divorced. A, a divorcing, like angry wife. Here we we do have um, the love interest in in Joan, um, who's obviously inspired and by. This a, yeah, this is an unrequited. Yes, love but, interest for. Percy but she was inspired by the two wives, as we know from 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 reading about the research that um, she does collaborate to 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 a certain degree to um, you know. Uh, yeah, but at least her story, her backstory, gives her reason, you know, sure. to be the way she is, and it's not just, oh, she's a bitch because she's a woman. Yeah, you know, and Balcony, um, you know, creating all these weapons, but his most important one is that he blocks the telepathy of the Ganymedians. Um, it's kind of important, and it's funny because, well, we never got the word precog, or we never got like. We did. We did get. We did get. I think we got precog once, and we got simulacra once. 
Yeah, there was less of the... There was no auto cars? No, the Ionacraft. Yeah, Ionacraft. Yeah, so I think... Uh, I, I'm assuming that Nelson was, might have been the one saying, like, hey, let's use some different, <laughs> different yeah. words. Yeah. Um, I think so, too. Yeah, and... Robots were called robots? Yeah, they were actually called robots. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... And, and yes, and I'll agree with you that Balkanani, like, developing the weapon... Nanny. Yeah. Um, that he, <laughs> he might be a ninny, but it's not in his name. <laughs> um, I do think he was one of the more interesting characters in the book. I don't know if he was my favorite, necessarily, but... Um, I, I love that character. Because he was so right about a lot of things, and so wrong about a lot of things. Right. And then... Um, when he he has, he has this scene um, on one. It's page one fifteen of the British edition. Hey, you're yelling at me. I am paying attention. I'm researching uh, the best synopsis for our next uh, our next book because I don't <laughs> I don't have a lot to say about this book that is, exists in my brain as a book, but in audio format. Um, <laughs> but you have stuff to say about people being dicks. I know that. Yeah. All the time. Yes. All the time. Okay, Which so is important because there's a lot of dicks in this book. So to me, like the kind of the coolest aspects of the Ganymede takeover for me are um, I like the fact that we're getting a slightly different voice being that it's a collaboration, that all the dick elements are there, but it's slightly different. And so I did really enjoy that. And I kind of wish that we had gotten all three of the books that they had wanted to work together on. And well, yeah, I mean, more is better. Yeah. And as they collaborated, it would probably get even more Ray Nelson. Right. And, um, but I haven't read uh, anything of Ray Nelson. Yeah, that, anybody read that was anything? my question. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my question. I haven't. And, but we really should maybe consider sometime in the future, doing a Ray Nelson just special, like read the, the They Live story and do something on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that I'd would, be down. That'd be good. Because um, They Live is kind of dick-like, so. But I think the Ray Nelson elements, it's funny because a lot of people would think that we, as being the dickheads, that we would kind of not welcome the collaboration, but I welcome the collaboration. Because- who, who, who said that? Yeah. No, I'm saying some people might think that because... Well, some people think that we can't dislike any of Dick's books and then like (laughs) Philip K. Dick, though. Um, True. It's true. For me, the coolest elements of the book, one thing, um, I love the shaft, the dart fired from from orbit to um, as a weapon. That was great because that presupposes drone warfare in a cool way. But to me, the absolute best moment of the whole book, besides the Winking Mountain, which I really liked, which is better that than was really good, better than Boob Mountain, the Winking Mountain. Was, oh yeah, that was the mountain coming to life and smashing yeah. people. That was awesome. Yeah, um, that was one of my favorite moments. But the illusion projector was definitely the most hilarious and weirdest moment. And I don't know how it translated an audio book, but I know on the written page. Um, it was interesting. Is that the, is that the scene where it's all the different like monster things that show up to battle? There's yeah, like the girl scouts and the, the girl scouts and the, like, the vampires. The tiny, <laughs> what is it? What did it, what did he say? One inch lesbians. 
one inch lesbians. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. part being the battalion of brownie scouts cracking skulls right and left with overbaked cookies. Um, and Four cross dressers. Red assed baboons charged in between him, pushing super. Not the aardvarks. <laughs> the red ass baboons charged in between him, pushing supermarket carts armed with fifty caliber machine guns. Um, a rock and roll group headed by a young, long-haired trumpeter named Gabriel played the jerk while a team of trained surgeons removed one appendix after another, throwing in an occasional <laughs> lobotomy to avoid monotony. Um, that whole scene was fucking hilarious. Yeah. Um, and but, well done. Just bizarre as hell and perfectly bizarre. Yeah. So yeah, I mean those are all elements that philosophers. It's or like old philosophers at some point. Yeah. But oh, well, there's like a whole Freud robotic bust, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. That that, he, that, that I believe yeah. that he. Oh well, that's that other interesting scene where he kills his robot. Is it his is his android girlfriend or yeah. assistant? Just because he he's an asshole. Yeah, yeah. He's a psycho. <laughs> and this book should not be. Forgotten as some like, no. Oh, it's just uh, it's just a dick book, and Ray Nelson's name is on there, or any bullshit like that. Well, and it, and and I agree with I agree with you, Larry. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's fine. Um, I I agree with Larry, and to kind of just touch on what I was saying a little bit earlier, if we're we should be able to discuss the collaborations and without any issue because it is something Dick was involved in. If yeah. we're if we're talking how that's no different than when we discuss an adaptation, which is a weird type of collaboration when somebody adapts yeah. somebody else's material. We I'm not we shouldn't be put to task for that and I don't think we should worry about it. Look, and we're all people, the three of us have collaborated with each other on various <laughs> projects. So yeah. we Correct. also know fiction-wise, how much we have each put into each other's fictional projects that we've worked on together. And we know that uh, I don't, I would never discount Ray Nelson's input or Phil K. Dixon input into this is that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just interesting to want to know how much was each, of course, but at the same time, it doesn't matter. In the end, it's a book that that went through both their hands and became like a creator of both of them. And And so, and I would like to have seen, I think it would be cool to see what Phil had done in further partnership with, with Ray Nelson, because I think this turned out pretty good. Yeah. I I think uh, technically, I think there's some technical parts of this that didn't work out. Uh, Like, like I was talking about some, like the bringing the guns back, bringing Lincoln back. There's elements like that, that just sort of come out of the blue. Uh, Balkani being introduced so late, you know, the, the, there's just elements that, from a technical point of view, writing point of view, were not put together properly. But other than that, I, I think it's a, a well-told, forward-moving story. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of tangential yeah, there's, stuff. Well, happening. there's a beginning, middle, and an end. And unlike certain other dick books we've read, the beginning, middle, and the end all work together. Whereas, you know, say much, for the much world, Jones fluid. made. They're, each section of the book is like its own novel, which right. I mean, I'm an I'm a World Jones made apologist. I think I like that book regardless, but this is not the World Jones made episode. <laughs> All right, moving on. Do judgment, yeah. Judge. So, 
Um, I'm going to give the Ganymede takeover four out of five overbaked Brownie Scout club uh, death cookies out of five. Um, I think overall it, it's a really cool book. It just, the sad thing for me is I wish that they had gotten to work together more. So I, overall, I think Ganymede takeover is kind of an improvement on um, game players of Titans. Like Frank. I don't really like the comparison, but I, I don't like the comparison, but for me, I think it's a similar, but better and alien invasion story, which uh, for, for, for Phil, and and um, overall, I think it's just a weird and cool book. And the whole book was made for me by the illusion projector scene. Um, like, uh, I it doesn't almost doesn't matter what else happened in the book. <laughs> well worth it. I well, well see worth that. It. I will. I will add to that. In in my judgment, I'm giving it three and a half giant artworks. But the uh, the stories that the one guy tells about the twenty you know, 24 soldiers showing up, him becoming friends with one of the soldiers and, like, then them slowly disappearing. And, and to me, that was that made it all worthwhile. It's not just the illusions that they create, but that the illusions stick around and become part of their lives. I thought that was fascinating and should have been, you know, more of the story. Like, honestly, we find out Lincoln dies, right? Mm-hmm. How great would it have been if that was just Percy's hallucination of Lincoln that stuck around all the way until they're in that little room and then, boom, Lincoln disappears and Percy is left alone facing the robots and fire. I mean, to me, that would have been amazing. But that's neither here nor there. I, I, I liked this this book and... Uh, I think this is could be considered one of the more underrated of his books. What do you got, Anthony? Yeah, I agree. It's underrated. Well, um, like I said, I don't think I can fairly judge this book because I listened to it as an audiobook, and it definitely changed how my brain received that information. Yeah. So I'll I'll uh, give the audiobook three creatures <laughs> out of five because. They definitely were doing their best to to do some voices and to make it listenable. And the narrator is a pretty good narrator. So mm-hmm. three out of five. It could have been a more could have been better produced, but it certainly was not nearly as bad as some like BS black metal demo done in somebody's broom closet. <laughs> so uh, that's a three out of five for the audiobook. And um, I'm gonna go ahead and maybe read the book book down the road, and I'll See, revisit. This. That's what I want to do with Solar Lottery. I haven't done it yet. But because I only listen to the audiobook, I want to go back and yeah read it. That's why I bought a copy. I just maybe, maybe that can be the, the Anthony Larry episode while David takes a break, <laughs> yeah. where we just revisit stuff that we kind of didn't really read, but did. Right. But did. Um, yeah, and you guys got we have a break coming up, so you guys got time to do that. Um, so uh, okay, adaptation. Um, oh, I got this one. Oh, good. Hit us up, Langhorn. I got this one. So, first of all, this is going to be directed by, oh, God, uh, Lone Leterrier. I I don't know. That's probably a butchered pronunciation of his name or her name. (laughs) But the director of the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance show on Netflix. Lewis. Lewis, uh, Oh, is it Lewis? Yeah. I can't read my writing. 
He directed a. Oh, it's Luis Leterrier. Yeah, he's a um, he's a um, protege of um, Luke Besson. He did a bunch oh, really? of those action movies for Luke Besson. So, and I would have it done by Henson Studios because this, like, you have first of all, I called them Job of the Hut, but then they're uh, the the creatures are basically Skeksis. You know, they they're all defined by their job. That's their name. And they all have crazy different jobs. Like there's a psychic. <laughs> That's, to me, that was a, incredible. You have a, a slave race that is also like everything, every job is done by them. And they're defined by doing that job. One guy's an engineer. This other guy presses a button. You know, this one's the psychic. This one uh, uses a hammer, whatever it is. I, I and the uh, the Skeksis are exactly that way. You have the, you know, the uh, the Chamberlain. You have the 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 uh, war guy. You have all these different jobs that they have. Uh, the man the man at arms, and um, so I would want this done by Henson Studios. I would have puppets. A lot of it would be puppets. Think how great all those illusions would be done with Henson puppets. All right, so I I like that. Oh, no, no judgment. <laughs> you don't think so? Um, no, I'm I'm cool with that. I, that's not where I would go. I well, first of all, I know the marketing of this movie would be from the writers of They Live and Blade Runner, um, because that's how you're going to market it. Because you get to to do that for this one time, and um, or from the minds behind, yeah. Um, but I think I would focus on Percy X as your main character and do like that kind of Tennessee storyline as the, you know, from Percy X's perspective is how I would adapt it, um, and make it kind of like, um, the black hole. (laughs) I don't know if I'd call it that, but, um, it would be like the black hole. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's how I would do it. Anthony? Um, I didn't put a whole lot of thought into this. Larry, I think we're the, we're going to put Larry's in production because <laughs> that's the most thought out. I, I didn't really, I, I don't know, maybe James Cameron. Fuck. I don't know for this one. <laughs> I, I really, but, uh, feel... the story itself, like, you know, it doesn't have to change that much. No, no. You, you change the names of stuff. Like you're not going to call them the need crew or. Whatever that, whatever <laughs> yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely did not uh, give this one a whole lot of thought. So sorry. Yeah, it wouldn't be first on my priority list of 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 a. This would be not even on my list. Like, it doesn't crack my top ten dick movies to put into production. Oh, I, I, I like it. I think it would. I had a vision for it. So. No, that's awesome. And then, and for for once, David and I didn't have a vision where we thought we were right. So, it's yeah. a nice change. Good job. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. To close off the show tonight, we're going to do dick like suggestions. We've moved it to the end. Uh, Langhorn J Tweed, why don't we start off with your dick like suggestion this month? All right. Sounds good. Because it's a good one. Yeah. This game came out uh, a while back. But they've had steady new content up until, like, a couple of days ago, they released the final bit of new content for the game. 
and it's called Control. And this one is done by Remedy Entertainment, who may also made the game Alan Wake. And that's also a fantastic game. It's a game where you familiar. Are, a, are a detective and you have to stay in the light. Or It's a mm. very horror-oriented. This game, you play a, a woman named Jessie who's on the search for her brother. And her, her investigation leads her to this building, uh, this, the FBC building which is the Federal Bureau of Control. So she enters this building. Basically, the first thing that happens, she meets a crazy janitor who points her to go a certain way. She goes into a room. She picks up a gun. The gun immediately tries to make her shoot herself in the head. And it turns out the gun decides who is going to be the director of the FBC. And boom, right away, you're the new director of the FBC. And... The Federal Bureau of Control handles all supernatural stuff on the planet. Like there's uh, an anchor that can cause people to kill themselves. There's a, there's a, uh, what, what do I have down here? There's an ashtray that creates a giant maze you can't get out of. Uh, there's a refrigerator that has to be looked at. Otherwise, it'll eat people. There's... <laughs> A slide projector that takes you to different realities. There's a a lamp that, or a a light switch, like a pull switch that will teleport you. There's, and the the whole thing is the the SCP or the uh, FBC's central branch is actually an old old house called the oldest house. And it's basically like a Hellmouth center of, uh, of energy, you know, all kinds of things. There's elder gods. There's this thing called the hiss, which is possessed people. Uh, there's crazy puppet commercials about, or uh, there's a crazy puppet show with two ugly model kids with real teeth and stuff. It's fucking crazy. Uh, but the gameplay is you you achieve powers through fighting these other dimensional creatures and you have your gun that is your symbol of power basically and you have a bunch of employees that do stuff for you it's an intense game all around really fun to play because it's really open on how you play it but it's linear in in how you progress but the side quests are amazing is this an online game or one you have to no, buy? It's a game you buy. Mm. And it's beautiful, too. The game itself is, is the graphics are fantastic. Oh, cool. Well, that, that, yeah, that does sound really interesting. Um, Anthony. Elder Gods, Alternate Dimensions, all that jazz. Uh, Anthony, what's your dick like suggestion this month? So for this month, I'm going to recommend Lorcan Finnegan's Vivarium, which has been out. I think it came out a little while ago. I don't. I don't know dates anymore. I just watch movies as they pop up on the TV because that's it's how I a, watch movies now. I know it's on Amazon Prime. That's how I watched it. Um, which it stars Imogene Poots and Jesse Eisenberg, who most people are familiar with by now. <laughs> they are a couple who are kind of looking to buy a home, but they're they're not sure yet. So they end up going out to this neighborhood with this super creepy real estate agent who jets and leaves them there, and they end up getting stuck in this horribly sim like 
the suburban neighborhood that doesn't change and they're forced to raise a child. So the trade-off is if you raise this kid, we'll let you out of the neighborhood. Really? And that's all I'm going to say about it because I think it does. It's a little too long and I don't care for the ending, but it it certainly it, does. a. Is it like a Stepford wife kind of neighborhood or? Yeah, it, it's kind of your run-of-the-mill tract home neighborhood. Oh, okay. Um, and they, they don't see anyone else there, right? They're the, oh, really? they're the they're the only people in this neighborhood, and you're led uh-huh. to. But but as you you'll find out later why that is, which is kind of cool. And there's an aspect of it that I wish they had explored more, but they don't. But I think it's better. It's a movie better seen not knowing a whole lot about it. For and for me, I felt it was kind of dick like because it honestly reminded me a lot of um, certain scenes from Eye in the Sky. A lot of the more alternate reality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, scenarios. Um, now that I brought it up, though, if you like Die in the Sky, and if you've already liked Vivarium, I highly recommend that people watch Channel Zero Season 2, No End House, which is that idea, but taken to the, its most extreme. And I, I don't know if you guys have watched Channel Zero, but for the most part, it's a pretty solid horror show. Every season is a different story. Um, I think it's about nine or nine or ten episodes each. Uh, they're not all bangers, but the first two seasons I think were my favorite. So, so those are my cool. two recommendations: Vivarium and Channel Zero, No End House. Okay, and I have two books this month. Uh, the winner of this year's Philip K. Dick Award, Sarah Pinsker, wrote a novel called "Song for a New Day," and it's about a global pandemic. Uh, coincidentally enough and where all it's about social distancing and where like the whole world is shut down and it's about touring musicians who kind of try to keep live music alive through a series of undergrounds and but at the same time one of the main characters is running a company that does virtual reality concerts and is trying to recruit the last bands that are like um, trying to keep this underground music alive. And one thing um, about it that I think, because really it's a big love song to live music and to like the independent spirit of like trying to keep live music alive. And, so how was it Dick like? Um, well, first of all, she won the Philip K. Dick Award and I think it's Dick like. Oh, haven't, we, haven't we been talking about how a lot of those books aren't Dick like? <laughs> Yes, but I think the virtual reality aspect where they're trying to create this manufactured reality where live music stays alive in the virtual reality is the part that is dick-like because so much of the novel takes place in this virtual space where where the books... um, Unfortunately, I think more of it takes... So it's like a Second Life concert venue? Right, right. And... um, half of the novel takes place with this woman who's recruiting and the other half is this live musician. And I think more of the novel focuses on the live musician than the virtual reality. And as much as I liked the novel as it was, I think focusing on the virtual reality and how music survives the pandemic, I would have liked more on the other end. However, I did like it. I did think it was a good book and I do think people should check it out. And it was it needs, a, needs a classical jug band is what it needs. Yeah, right. Um, and my other the the one that I I'm a 
more of a proponent of is this book called The Mirage by Matt Ruff. Matt Ruff is um, kind of man of the moment right now because he wrote a little novel called Lovecraft Country, which is um, right now the biggest show on HBO and a big deal. But before he wrote Lovecraft Country, he wrote this little ditty. And it is very Philip K. Dick because it's an alternate history that imagines um, a giant terrorist attack happening on these two towers in Baghdad and on November 9th, 2001, which sets off the global war on terrorism against the Christian fundamentalists who did the terrorist attack against this, this United Arab States. Nice. And so, um, there's lots of really cool shit in here. I really hated the ending. <laughs> uh, I still gave the book, um, I believe, four the or five. Two recommendations that you don't really like. Got it. No, I really liked this novel. Welcome to David's subpar recommendations segment of the podcast. <laughs> no, where, I really where he had to reach to find a book to have to talk about. <laughs> no, 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 no. I really did like the novel. There's lots of really cool things. There's bonkers aspects from the CIA agents, um, the, the, the director of the CIA in the evangelical states of Texas is David Koresh, and like yeah. weird shit like that. I did really like a lot of aspects of this book. The main character is a, um, is a hard-boiled cop from the Baghdad PD, um, like one of the coolest scenes is when he goes to interrogate like the head of the, of the um, Iraqi mafia, which is Saddam Hussein that, you know, so there's really cool stuff going on here. What was Uh, the end? What, what did you just not agree with how it ended or? Yeah. uh, It's it's a huge spoiler. So yeah, don't tell us what it is, but yeah, there's a kind of a twist at the end that I thought kind of took out some of the weight and the power of, the other 375 pages of it. I do think a difference between Man of the High Castle and this is that um, this novel kind of takes the firm stance that there are two realities and that this is a flip side. And so that's very different from Man of the High Castle. My review on my blog talks a lot about the differences between the Mirage and Man of the High Castle and how they're not as comparable as every other fucking review out there did. Because every review compared it to Man of the High Castle, and that annoyed the shit out of me. Um, It is dick-like, but not exactly Man of the High Castle, as I would say. I think it's... I don't know. But anyways, that's those are my two dick-like suggestions, so... All right, Anthony, what do we got next time? Coming up next on the Dickheads podcast. World War Terminus has left Earth an underpopulated wasteland where people keep electronic animals as pets. Through this bleak landscape, reluctant bounty hunter Rick Deckard stalks the sophisticated and lethal Nexus 6 androids who have fled their labors in the Martian colonies. In doing so, Deckard soon learns that the new messiah, the single messenger of hope in a desperate society, might also be fake. We're doing Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Bum, bum, bum. Guys, let me let me just tell that you real quick, enough. real quick, real quick though, I just want to say, trying to find back cover copy for this was a pain in my ass because everybody no. just wants to fucking talk about Blade Runner. The movie. Everybody's yeah. like, oh, check out this movie. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, I know. I've seen that movie. 
I love that movie, but the back cut, the the Blade Runner uh, tie-in novel, not tie-in novel, but the movie edition is right. is, is like reading the back copy for an action movie. It was so. January 2021, and Rickard, <laughs> Rick Deckard has a license to kill. Somewhere among the hordes of humans out there lurked several rogue androids. Deckard's assignment? Find them, and then retire them. Trouble was, the androids all looked and acted exactly like humans, and they didn't want to be found. That's for the uh, right. the movie edition of the book. Yeah. Um, so that's someone Jesus that hasn't Christ. even okay. read the book. Fun, fun <laughs> fact, though, I've never read this book. Yeah, and we've both And so this is going to be a whole cool new experience for me. Yeah. Um, because obviously, as everybody knows, and anyone who knows me or follows me on like social media knows, I'm a huge Blade Runner fan. Um, I actually just came into possession of a really cool old school uh, Blade Runner sketchbook. Really? Which is super badass. Yeah, um, I pictures of it. It looks yeah. really cool. It's it, super awesome. Uh, Ganymede Takeover is done. And keep it paranoid. Get to the Discord. Go on the Discord. Yeah, I asked a question and then no one answered me. So go to the Discord. Yeah, Answer my questions. And, Have uh, a discussion. And David's doing all kinds of new stuff with his blog and recording all kinds of different things. So he doesn't go insane during the lockdown. Anthony's working on books and stuff. That's right. I'm almost done with uh, Now I Can Talk About It because it's no longer a ghostwriting project. I have been collaborating on, well, I don't even know if it's a collaboration, but the I've been working on, yeah. So I will should have a book out next year uh, with a horror author, Ryan C. Thomas. So we are now co-writing this as opposed to me ghostwriting it. Awesome. I'm excited for that. All right. Yeah, so we're, all, we're all out there. Yeah. And, uh, I've, I've got so many different channels on the, uh, on the Discord that we can discuss almost anything. I want to know what short stories people want us to talk about. It doesn't just have to be ones that have been adapted. We don't just have to exist in the realm that Electric Dreams created. We can talk about other stories. I just, you know, there's so fucking many of them out there. I don't have the time to go through every single one. So, yeah. Good. All right. That's it. We're done. Good night, America and everybody else. Keep it paranoid. Good night. Go be paranoid.